The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's nice to see in our formal meditation practice, compassion practice, or really any of the four divine abodes or Brahma Viharas. So we have that basic goodness, metta. We have this tender-heartedness, compassion, karuna is the Pali word. Starting next week, maybe, I think so at least, we'll start with mudita, appreciative joy. And then the last couple of weeks, upeka, equanimity, this radiant, loving balance, equanimity. And it's, you know, as I've, uh, if you remember that first handout that I gave folks week one and two, and it's uh, based on how Venerable Analio, this German monk, teaches from the suttas, from the way the Buddha taught, just breaking down this abiding in the divine abodes, <coughs> excuse me, into four related steps, developing the skill to arouse so like tonight, using those four gathas, these are practice phrases, you could maybe translate that word gatha. It's not something we use so much in early Buddhism, but it's kind of like a mantra. It's just a way of reflecting. So we you know, have other ways of using phrases like, this is being known, right? So the Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, being a poet and who he is, his phrases have a yeah, it has its own particular flavor. And it's nice, there are probably an infinite number of ways to arouse these beautiful attitudes of loving-kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. And a lot of it is um, needs to be somewhat specific to our own personality and our own lived experience. How do you remember with great confidence that this heart is actually capable of being tender-hearted and caring. Maybe you just remember coming across a dead bird when you were six years old, you know, and just that simple memory breaks the heart wide open again and you realize, oh yeah, the heart does care. Not isolated in, you know, in a place where I, I just don't have space to care about you. And that's the thing, you know, whatever of these four divine abodes we're working with, the initial movement, like once it's aroused, the way we know we're arousing something worth arousing, it has an expansive flavor to it, as opposed to a tight, narrow, constricted flavor to it. And that's, you know, then we trust that capacity of our heart to be more open, more inclusive, less afraid, less in need of being in a tight corner, turning away from life, turning away from the moment, turning away from what, for whatever reason, we're finding hard to bear or hard to see. And we want to notice and pay attention to that expansive, because that's part of getting to know compassion or any of these four attitudes is noticing that upwelling 
or that radiant or that expansive energetic feel. And it's something that can be directly experienced. Just like, you know, when we're embarrassed or really angry, it feels tight and constricted. And we should get to know that too. Like, basically, honey, that's not the way. And when we're feeling the opening and expansive nature of one of these four wholesome attitudes, these attitudes of love, we should recognize that expansive movement and wisdom goes, yeah, this feels like the right way. <laughs> this seems to be in the right direction, right? This movement towards more openness. And so we have the arousing, the skill to arouse, to remember that there, that I do have confidence. We, I have lived experience where I've come across, noticed, that generous quality, that good quality of the heart. So it doesn't matter if I, if I don't sense it right now. Knowing that it's there is how we arouse it. And then using some creative method, like using the four phrases we learned tonight, or I'll send them out in the email to the whole group. Uh, so don't feel like you have to remember or have your notes, I'll send it out. Maybe I'll get it done tonight. Now that I said it, I will get it done tonight. <laughs> so, but uh, we arouse, then as soon as it's aroused, if we actually have aroused one of these emotions, then we'll notice that expansive nature. So then keep that in mind, and it will lead to that more boundless, where we sense directly in our subjective experience that the experience of the mind, the heart and body seems touched, seems affected by the goodness of compassion. And maybe you got there in tonight's set, in moments, or maybe for many moments, where you really felt that your entire being, your entire experience, somehow was the vibration of this love of compassion, this tender-heartedness. And then once you, once it's pervasive like that, like you really feel like it's everywhere in your experience, then the last step is to learn how to abide, to trust it, to go from like me neurotically as a practitioner doing the compassion practice to more letting go into it. That it, that somehow there's faith born from experience that the compassion is self-replicating, like being with it, being and appreciating it and trusting it is all that's needed. And we really have to let go of ideas of what it is or what it should look like and more just trust that it's inclusive. So you might even, at this point, when you're, when you're really learning that last step, how to abide, you might catch yourself chronically like going to certain memories that evoke compassion, it, and you'll realize, I don't really need to do that right now, right? Because it's already alive in the heart, body, mind, in this being. It doesn't need to be aroused. So we can, it's more a, a leaning back into it or abiding with it than it is this sort of initial move of like, I got to repeat a phrase or I've got to think this up or I got to 
picture that, even though that could be quite useful in the arousing step. So again, those st- and you should have the handout, and if you don't, um, it's in one of the previous emails from the first and second week. You can get that link. Arousing, paying attention to the expansive, radiant, generous nature of the attitude. Notice that every part of your experience seems touched, affected, influenced, expressing the compassion, and then go from doing the practice to being the compassion, resting in it, trusting it. Okay? Any questions about just the sort of how you can practice with that? And and maybe the last thing I'll say, when we're in that place of abiding, and you might remember from the guided meditation tonight, if you want, let the mind be interested in how beautiful, how freeing it is to be aligned, to be established, to be abiding in that attitude of love. How trustworthy, but how free it is. Because it's like uh, sometimes we'll say, from a Buddhist point of view, we'll say, oh, the heart is empty of fear. And you can even say that. Ah, this is the experience of non-fear. The heart, there's no fear right now in the heart. There's no aversion right now in the heart. To really kind of get clear. So that's a nice thing to do, is to get clear what's not there. Yeah, Barbara, looks like you have your hand up. That was very helpful. Uh, I'm curious, when we were doing this meditation tonight, I, because I have certain grief in my life right now, I, when I went for self-compassion, I found myself sobbing throughout the meditation, as is, and I'm wondering, is that what people do? And <laughs> uh, I have stopped? I don't know. Well, I guess that's my comment. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Barbara. Yeah, we just trust what happens. And uh, obviously, it does happen, because there you go, you know. It's one of the nice things about people sharing like this, Barbara, is that it normalizes, because we're we're inviting the heart, the energies to move. Like, um, that's part of the inclusive nature of love and compassion, is it doesn't have a problem with that movement of grief or that movement of sadness. And we're not indulging in the tears, but we're not in any way trying to suppress the tears. And as long as they last, they last. And when they go away, we're not sort of looking like, where did that go? Because it, and and what you can notice, like that could be part of that, like the heart's willingness to let that sadness and grief move in the form of sobbing that might be part of that experience of opening and including, like this grief belongs to. It has permission to do what it needs to do. There's this, as much space as that pain of loss or that sadness or that grief, as much space as it needs, that space is here and now. And even though those tears might be moving, and all kinds of emotion moving, we can still notice the expansive space that's allowing for that, 
and how the whole being is affected by the non-fear with that movement and to really trust it, to abide in it. You can still do the practice even while that's all moving. And this is, I mean, this really is an example of the how wisdom and love work together. This capacity to, it's not quite right to say it this way, but to stand back and realize, oh, there's a lot moving in the heart and it feels like this and it's okay. And even if it feels like too much, well, maybe that's okay too. And so sometimes we need a more open-ended statement like, can this be okay? I don't know, but can it be okay that this much is moving? There's this, the sobbing is this heavy. The sobbing is going on this long. Can that be okay? And just like, uh, do I even need to know? Does somebody need to know? And that's what I meant, like, we're neither for it in the sense that like, I'm indulging in it. I, 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 There's some idea in the mind that, well, maybe if I just keep sobbing, I'll work through this grief and then I'll be done. So then, then that's a little bit of indulging in it. Like, we don't need a story because the truth is we don't really know. We know it's done when it doesn't happen anymore, ever. <laughs> so in other words, we never know it's done, except, you know, 10 years and it hasn't happened. You know, all, you know, well, for 10 years it hasn't happened. You know, that particular grief or that particular place of sadness isn't showing up anymore. But we don't really know if it's done even then, if it hasn't been there in 10 years. It's just maybe there's a little nook and cranny of it left and when the conditions are right, we might shed a, a few more tears about that thing. We don't really know. But we don't need to know. That's the great thing about grieving. We just, when it shows up, we give it permission to do what it needs to do. And that's that's the wisdom and the uh, functionality of compassion. It knows what to do with that sadness. Give it space. Thanks, Barbara. So uh, we got an email, I got an email earlier in the week um, about sensitivity, and some of you might remember in that uh, article that Ajahn Sumedho wrote, Liberating Emotions. He has a paragraph on that. Thanks, Lois, for sending in your question, because it's a really good point about um, not just the divine abode practices, but just generally doing Buddhist wisdom awareness practice, following this path that the Buddha taught about, using our life for awakening, I guess we could say, that inevitably if we do that, we're going to become really sensitive. It's a path of increasing sensitivity. And it's totally appropriate for us to wonder, is that a good thing? Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but there are times we feel way too sensitive. And uh, this is just a little section from that paragraph toward the end of the article, Liberating Emotions by Ajahn Sumedho. He writes here, In a way, this can be rather frightening because where you used to be pretty tough, you know, nothing bothers me, suddenly you find you're not tough. 
So how do you interpret that sensitivity? If it's on a personal level, it can be very frightening because you're becoming too sensitive. It seems as though you are more fragile and delicate rather than stronger and unshakable. Something that didn't bother you before suddenly shatters you. That is because the basic delusion is still there. You are living a life that is opening. That's the good part, right? You're living a life that is opening, but you're still interpreting it in a personal way. You have no refuge. So let's just reflect on that because it's true. You know, and it's kind of the engine of awakening more sensitivity, a more honest, exposed relationship to the moment, to life. And it's unbearable. It's too much. It's too intense. It's too wild. It's too scary. But we find that wisdom and love, in a way, is provoked because it's so hard so impossible to be a sensitive human being without wisdom and love. So in a way, the exposure of the sensitivity creates some of the causes for the deepening of wisdom and love. Because wisdom and love is the only way for us humans to handle being, having this sensitive, honest, clear, open-hearted, tender-hearted relationship with the moment and with conditions and with each other. Otherwise, we do what, you know, we notice we do all the time. We close down, we turn away, we have a fixed view, we have, you know, an infinite number of ways of closing our heart to the conditions of the moment and the conditions of the world. Because we, we don't believe, we don't know how to be wide open. But it's like Ajahn Sumedho says, you have no refuge. And then the next paragraph he writes, the sense of refuge is very important. It's where one's faith is in the Dhamma rather than, say, in a refined situation with good, moral, and pleasant people. Right. So instead of thinking like, in order for me to be this sensitive, I need to live in a nice place where nobody bothers me, you know, where there are tropical breezes, it doesn't get this cold, and uh, there are no noxious insects. Then I can be the sensitive. Or where I don't read the news, and I don't hear about the terrible things or the terrible suffering, the terrible injustices that are happening out there. Then I can handle this sensitivity. But see, that doesn't work. Like Knowing that I have to be disconnected is itself very stressful. The only way to be really free, to be fully released, is to be um, really connected with everything and to be really connected and open to all the joy and all the sorrow means we need this wisdom and love. So the last sentence here, He says that, he says, the refuge is intuitive awareness. Here is not dependent on on polite manners, morality, and everybody being good and nice and pleasant. This refuge means that I can go anywhere. I can go into the lion's den or the battlefield because it is unshakable. 
it is deathless, not refined or special. So we don't rely on our kind of refined, nice conditions, including nice meditative experiences. We rely on this very powerful, earthy wisdom, which is love. Love is sort of the embodied wisdom. You know, the compassion is embodied wisdom, right? Because it knows how to be human. It knows how to be, you know, in relationship with another human being or knows how to be an imperfect parent or an imperfect citizen. Because part of being human means there is no, there's only pretend clarity, like in terms of choices that need to be made. There's no real clarity about what I should say next or what I shouldn't say next or how I should relate to my partner or what I shouldn't do with my partner, you know, how to raise kids, should we eat meat or not. Is there perfect clarity in any of these things? I mean, we pretend, you know, we have arguments as if we know. Everything's ambiguous, everything's uncertain, everything's insecure. And that's not a problem because that's exactly the messiness and brokenness is exactly what provokes and deepens wisdom and love, purifies wisdom and love. So when uh, when we have small groups later tonight, um, one of the interesting things to talk about in that, that setting and at home and to reflect on for the next week or two is, you know, as you sense your sensitivity, like notice the difference when you're feeling really exposed and sensitive, you know, to joy, because that's where we're going with mudita practice, appreciative joy, like seeing what's beautiful, seeing what's good. But now in particular with suffering, when you feel really sensitive with suffering and there doesn't seem to be much wisdom, much capacity to relax with the sensitivity, with the exposure. Like, what is that experience? What is the impulse in our heart when we're feeling really exposed to suffering and we don't like it and we don't know what to do with it? So then, like, just tracking all the ways we close our heart, we throw people out of our heart, we go towards distraction, we go towards some fixed view, like they deserve it, or it's not my responsibility, or this person, or these people are to blame, right? And and how we hold to these fixed ideas or these distractions as a kind of defense from the sensitivity that we don't know how to feel. And then... Notice other places in your life where you feel really open and sensitive and vulnerable to what's happening in and around us, right? But there seems to be a lot of wisdom and a lot of confidence in that tenderness. And what's that experience? When you're not afraid of suffering, your own or others. And you can be really relaxed. And in the same way, like, uh, this is such a good reflection, like, when when have we had the experience of when we're feeling some suffering where somebody showed up for us and they weren't afraid of our suffering? 
Like, have we had that experience where somebody could really meet us when we were hurting and they weren't in a hurry to fix us because our suffering bothered them, right? But they definitely wanted to help, you know, but they weren't neurotically in need of us getting rid of our suffering because it was bothering them or they were afraid of it. Or So when have we really felt met as a suffering being? That would be nice to share and to reflect on. And then, of course, the other unfortunate time is when did we, when were we hurting, when were we suffering, and somebody shows up and they may have thought they were being compassionate, but they were really afraid of our suffering. They were really controlling around our suffering. They didn't know how to show up around our suffering. And what was that like? And so those are the four examples that would be really nice to talk about. Now, you don't have to talk about all four, but you might just choose one or two of those. So a time when you felt really sensitive and you felt like you could handle that exposure, like somebody suffering or even the world suffering, but you found that you didn't have to turn away, you didn't have to close down, you didn't have to kind of have a fixed belief that created some distance. It's like the heart could really handle, because of the compassion and wisdom, the heart could really handle the exposure, the truth of suffering. And times when we couldn't, and then we noticed all the defensiveness, right? And then also being met by somebody with authentic wisdom and compassion and being met with somebody with some false version of compassion not really able to meet us in our own suffering. Okay, so just keep that in mind um, when we have the small group. I remember um, Jack Kornfeld has a nice chapter in, in his book, Path with Heart. Some of you probably remember it uh, was written quite a long time ago now, definitely more than 20 years. And he has a couple good chapters on compassion if you have that book or want to get a hold of that book, including, you know, the different ways we get codependent, where we feel obliged to be taking care of everybody's suffering or our partner's suffering or our child's suffering. And in a way that we're not holding the whole. That's why that second part, you know, we arouse compassion and then we get really attuned to the expansive, inclusive nature of all of these divine abodes. That's really important because that prevents that codependent, like where I'm obsessively taking care of somebody's suffering, but completely, completely unaware of the imbalance, like I'm not really listening to my own needs. How does that happen? Well, we have an idea, I should be a compassionate person, and we see that somebody's suffering and we have this idea that we don't question and we don't feel into that I need to be the one who helps them. It's my responsibility. But compassion isn't an idea. It's really this natural, you know, it's its, it's own natural process. It's not even personal. And that's why it's really important to know that love always has that inclusive flavor to it. 
And if you're not feeling that inclusive flavor, which includes you, right? It it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't have preferences like, oh no, I'm the mother here or I'm the partner here. I have to neglect my own needs. It doesn't really care about whose needs. It's just opening to the moment. So if our needs are proximate, if the cries of our own heart are the loudest, then we're going to respond because it's right here. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't a compassionate, sensitive heart say, oh, honey, you need to go to bed or you need some joy in your life. You need to go relax. You need to go play. It would. That's what a wise and compassionate heart does. I always give the example just because it's it's just such a out-of-the-box example. But a lot of you know about Thich Nhat Hanh. He was a peace activist. I mean, a real hardcore activist for so much of his life, basically since his ordination as a teenager and was a real anti-war activist in Vietnam to the degree that they wouldn't let him back in when he went to uh, Paris for the Paris peace talks in, the, I think, around 1968. That's why we're the fortunate recipients of his teachings because he wasn't allowed back in the country by the U.S. or the South Vietnamese government or the North Vietnamese government. But in any case, when, you know, after the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and Pentagon, he the next day, because the, the community where he was at really wanted to respond and sort of keep this country from going to war, because, of course, they they knew exactly the tendency of our heart to sort of like need to strike back. And later, you know, in a week or two, he, he wrote a very strong letter, powerful letter, that hate doesn't resolve hate. You know, war doesn't resolve war, violence doesn't resolve violence. And sent it, you know, to a letter, an open letter to the president and to the wider community. But before that, the next day, right afterward, he got some vans and he took everybody, all the nuns and monks and lay people who were staying at the monastery, I think he was at Deer Park, uh, outside of San Diego at the time. And they went to the beach and played tag and played. And it's this idea that when we're overwhelmed, he actually, in, in another teaching of his, Thich Nhat Hanh, says that if you keep opening to suffering in a way where your heart doesn't know how to actually be in a compassionate relationship with it, that it's act, actually an act of violence. It's an aggressive act. If we feel like I got to stay exposed to suffering, you know, it's how we get into this place where we feel obliged to read the news, even though what our heart is doing with the information is not healthy or good for anyone. It certainly isn't helping those people that we're reading about. In a way, it's, it's a kind of... Um, toxic self-stimulation, that this sort of vortex of exposing our heart to the truth of suffering, but all we're provoking is this contraction, this sort of fixed idea that the world sucks or the world is bad or there are evil people out there. We're kind of scaring ourselves, but we it masquerades as if we care 
like I must I must be compassionate because I'm feeling so much angst or stress or anger or repulsion or but that's not compassion compassion has this generous and open and its flavor its basic flavor is fearlessness love isn't afraid of the way it is now that's a high bar you know and uh it's okay it's nice to be inspired by that high bar these so stories of saints you know that can be in terrible places and um and just be open-hearted and loving and unmoved and Thich Han is one of those people just with all the suffering in the Vietnamese community that he took care of for so many decades or the Dalai Lama and the terrible stuff that has happened in Tibet for the last 60-70 years and uh and just to be responsible and and caring of all that suffering and not to lose the capacity to be joyful and light and happy and it's just an interesting question as we have a more truthful and intimate connection with the truth of suffering our own and those people who are close to us and the wider world can we do that and still be a happy light responsive buoyant human being is grimness the same as compassion it's really important this is a like just in terms of playing with this idea of being wide open one of the most famous passages about this is from uh, shantideva a 9th century Buddhist monk uh, from northern India. He wrote a very <clears throat> famous text, The Way of the Bodhisattva, and this is from that. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge, May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light, for those who need a resting place, a bed, for those who need a servant, may I be their servant. May I be a wishing jewel, a vase of plenty, a word of power and the supreme healing. May I be a tree of miracles and for every being the abundant cow. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring as the sky itself endures for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus, for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, <coughs> may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. <coughs> and I'm sure some of you recognize you know, the movement in one of the later schools of Buddhism toward this bodhisattva vow. Of course, that was there all along, but it really got amplified in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, one of the later beautiful traditions in Buddhism. This this wish, like, to live uh, for the benefit of all, to dedicate my life to the alleviation of suffering, 
to not leave until everybody's taken care of. And uh, just to open up to that possibility that our heart can care about everything. Now that doesn't mean we can be there now or often, but to really have this idea at least, this sort of sense that the grip of fear and the idea of like compassion and love is somehow limited and then it runs out. I mean, that may be that we do reach an end and we need to replenish, but that's more about how love is moving like that codependent thinking that your needs are more important than this person right here. And that's part of that sense, that third step of boundlessness. And then especially when we really abide, we really let go of doing the love and become more the being the love. We see that it doesn't round out, uh, doesn't wear out or doesn't um, run out. That it's whatever love is, it doesn't have an end. <laughs> because, you know, in early Buddhist terms, it's more about what's not there. It's really the absence of those fixed views that come about with aversion, with the glue of aversion, the glue of fear. We can, I can construct an idea based on my fear, based on my aversion, based on my hate, and that makes things appear limited. But when that, when compassion is strong and that melts away, that's abandoned, there's no end. We're enlivened by the exposure. We're not afraid of it. It doesn't wear us out. I mean, the body still might get tired, but the capacity for love and engagement, it's really enlivening. And I'm, I'm guessing that some of us have had that experience where maybe you were in a caretaking role and the mind was in a pretty balanced, healthy relationship with that exposure, that work you were doing to take care of somebody or whatever it might be. I mean, people talk about this, you know, when, you know, there was a crisis and they really showed up for it. And they'll talk about it for years and years, decades afterward, that that was actually the happiest time in their life because they were just giving their life away one moment after the next and they felt so enlivened. And healthy parenting in moments is this too. Like I didn't raise kids, but I know many of you have. And you might remember times being in the thick of being a parent where instead of being a heavy burden that you have to do, there probably were times when you felt quite enlivened by the incredible commitment and the ongoing submission to the duties and responsibilities of parenting. I certainly feel that in terms of my life um, teaching and running the center and now doing it with Shelley. But, you know, all these decades now, we're getting close to 30 years. Um, it's kind of for Wynn and me, it's been a bit of, of our kids, you know, it was sort of a choice to to sort of do this and, and having kids didn't make sense. Some of you remember the early center where we lived in a tiny space in the corner of the center for 15 years. 
wasn't really conducive to even being a married couple, let alone having children. But uh, but it felt like, in a way, that that sort of ongoing submission, ongoing exposure to the community, and you know, people, everyone has their own version of that in their life, and it's good actually to look at the edge, because you'll see that way of flipping back and forth, forth where. In moments, it feels like a real personal problem, like this is not okay, this is not healthy, this is too much. And then possibly in other moments, I've never felt more alive. I've never felt more free. I've never felt more like I belong, that I'm doing what I'm meant to do, and back and forth. And that's sort of a very rich place for learning. And you might, this might be something that comes up in the and the small groups as well. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.